Hi, I'm Paul Johnson. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Life Support. Trauma is um, a disconnection on so many different levels. And um, so if if a person experiences trauma, and, it, and this can be something someone does to someone else, this could be the just things that happen in life, um, it could be natural disasters like a storm or a fire, those kinds of things. Um, but you can become disconnected from yourself because of the overwhelming fear, the overwhelming sense of helplessness. Those are the words of family psychologist Kim Perrigate as she shares her thoughts and her wisdom on how to deal with all of the traumas in our world today. This is Life Support. Everything you do from then on is different. One of the detectives, I think his name was He was Derek. a golden boy. All we can do right now is come Extreme together. Extreme domestic violence, multiple rapes. Welcome to Life Support, hosted by Pastor Paul Johnson from Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota, a trauma survivor himself. My name is Steve Johnson, director of Five Stone Media, a co-sponsor of this program, and our goal is to use story to bring hope and healing. And now let's join the conversation between Kim Perrigate and Pastor Paul. Hey, so glad to have you on Life Support, and we're going to talk about some things that are really important uh, in our time together. Kim Perrigate joins me. She's a licensed psychologist and truth be told, a longtime friend as well. Yes. Kim, it's so, great, it's so great to have you here. Thanks for coming here. Thank you for inviting me. And there's a lot going on in our world. And one of the areas of your expertise is uh, trauma when it comes to families. Yes. And uh, the people that listen to this program know some of uh, my story and some of the things that our families dealt with, you know, loss of a mother, loss of a son, and those types of things. And I can talk about the toll that's taken on our family, but you have seen so many other families in the midst of your practice and your experience and so forth. So let's talk a little bit about trauma and the church and response to trauma and all those things. So here's what I'm going to just make it really easy to start with. The church is not very good at dealing with trauma in families. In my opinion. So I'm that's my easy first question. With that, yes. So what do you think? Why is that, Kim? Why does the church struggle to deal with trauma? I have always thought that part of the problem is that trauma, by its very definition, means that somebody has been through something that is intense emotionally, um, where they have felt very much helpless or out of control, um, and perhaps even have felt the sense that their life is threatened. Whether it's actually threatened or not doesn't matter. It's the sense that they have lost control. So there's deep pain. There is great intensity when somebody has been through trauma. And I think as a culture, we don't do pain very well. As a church, we would really like to kind of make everything be rosy and good. And so if someone is honest about the pain that they're in or about the intensity of their feelings or their failures or struggles in relationships, it can be really scary to know how might how someone might respond to that. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the church is just a reflection of our American culture at this point? Well, in many ways, of course it is, because mm -hmm. that's the context that the American church is in, is in mm -hmm. American culture. 
Um, I do see some signs that it's changing. I do see churches that are willing to embrace difficult situations. There there are many churches, yours is one of them I know, that has opened the doors to people with disabilities to share the gospel, to minister to them and their families, because there's a lot of needs that come along with that. Um, that is a fairly new um, phenomenon, as far as I'm aware. Um, I also see churches developing outreaches to people in certain groups, affinity groups. There's divorce care. There's grief share. Um, there's programs and curricula that are designed to meet specific needs of people in the church. And that, that actually really encourages me because there's nothing quite like meeting with other people who maybe don't have the exact experience that you do, but they have the emotional um, awareness of the same things you've been going through. Yeah. You know, when Jesus walked the earth and the culture that he was immersed in dealt with this entirely differently. And if you even go over to the Middle East now, you see a complete difference in how death is dealt with and so forth. Very hands-on. I don't want to say normalized, but much more normalized. It's than much it more out here. in the open. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's much more out in the open. The grieving is out in the open, right. weeping, wailing, and that kind of thing. Right. Why are Americans so closed off? Are we afraid well, this is like 100% my opinion. This is not based on any That's kind why of you're study or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but I, what I really think it is, is that um, one of the things that American enculturation does is it sends a very strong, very clear message that you are in control. You are in control of your destiny. You're in control of what happens to you this week and next week and five years down the road. And that's a huge lie. (laughs) That is an unreality. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is part of our culture to think I can be self-sufficient. I can handle whatever comes my way. And if I show that I'm not handling something well, that's kind of tantamount to destroying my identity, Mm -hmm. right? And saying, gosh, I'm struggling with this, but I can't let anybody know that because the expectation is I can handle it. Right. Right. And that's where one of my pet peeve things comes from. One of the Bible verses that I hate the most, which is actually not in the Bible, which is God never gives us more than we can handle. Right. And um, that's an unreality. That's a lie. Um, and that distorts so many people's thinking about themselves and about their situation and even what they can do about it. Yeah, good old folk theology right. to, steer, to steer our thinking processes. So then what happens is when someone does experience trauma, then isolation comes, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Trauma is um, a disconnection on so many different levels. And um, so if if a person experiences trauma, and it, and this can be something someone does to someone else, this could be the just things that happen in life. Um, it could be natural disasters like a storm or a fire, those kinds of things. Um, but you can become disconnected from yourself because of the overwhelming fear, the overwhelming sense of helplessness. And so trauma at its very root is a disconnection. And part of the clinical symptoms of somebody who's been traumatized is that they... Um, avoid any reminder, any 
um, reference, maybe even like a place or a smell or anything that might remind them of the trauma that took place. So avoidance also helps with disconnection Mm. and it cycles on itself. And then I'm guessing the friend group or whatever group that person identifies with, whether it be a family, church group or whatever, are also then experiencing that either through that person or becoming frustrated because they don't understand why the behavior is changing. And then you have even more of a division. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, The person feels alienated from themselves, but because maybe they aren't even able to assess or express to themselves what they've been through, they certainly can't share it with someone else. Um, I had had a little four-year-old client many years ago who choked on a potato chip. And it wasn't life-threatening, but it was very, very scary for her. And her response to that was to not eat anything. Hmm. And so she came to therapy because she was losing weight, and you never want to see a four-year-old lose weight. Um, But her explanation to herself is eating food will scare me. And Mm -hmm. so she wouldn't eat anymore. Um, So we... We were able to use play therapy, and she she did some incredible play with a doll that wouldn't take a bottle and wouldn't eat. And she resolved it by being able to express, I am so hungry, but I am so afraid to eat. Hmm. Not in those words, but that's, right. that's right. the connection she made. And once she got reconnected with her own um, emotions and her own um, actual hunger she was able to do that again. So if you have a child like that, and I have have children like that, that have been through stuff, and you take them to play therapy, and you work through all these different processes, and you, at one point, they look at you and say, I'm not going anymore to anyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You feel incredibly isolated because none of your friends understand what's going on with your children. as a parent. Yeah. And so you're taking your kids to all these places, and you're tuned in 100% to what's going on with them. Right. But you take them to community group, or you take them to children's ministry. And I'm not picking on the church, but that's our context. Mm-hmm. No one knows what to do with them. Right. So the first reaction is, let's just get them out of here. Right. And Which that's only not good for anybody. That reinforces the disconnection. Right. right. So how can, how can a church come alongside of a family without being obtrusive, but yet understanding that there's more there than I really understand, but they need someone. Mm-hmm. We'll get back to the conversation with psychologist Kim Perrigate in just a moment. You know, Pastor Paul is hosting this program from a unique perspective. After losing his first wife to cancer, he then experienced the homicide of his young adult son, Taylor. And that's what life support is all about, survivors in discussion with other survivors. My name is Steve Johnson, Executive Director of Five Stone Media, and we're so pleased to be a co-sponsor of this program. And for a video version of this and other conversations like this, you can visit fivestonemedia.com slash life support. And now back to Kim Perrigate and Pastor Paul. No one knows what to do with them. Right. So the first reaction is, let's just get them out of here. Right. And Which that's not good for anybody. That reinforces the disconnection. Right. right. So how can, how can a church 
come alongside of a family without being obtrusive, but yet understanding that there's more there than I really understand, but they need someone. Mm-hmm. How does that work? How can that be done? Um, I think part of what needs to happen is that the parents in that situation will need to be very selective about who they trust. So you narrow the group. Narrow the group mm-hmm. and what they're able to share. And especially if the child is the one who's been traumatized, I think it's very important not to speak for the child and not say more than the child is able to or willing for other people to know. But And maybe that's a an empowering thing to do with the child is what can we tell people mm. at church mm-hmm. or at school so they can understand what it's like for you sometimes. And if the child can construct an amount of um, sharing that they're comfortable with, and then parents can share that with key people, maybe a Sunday school teacher or a student ministries leader, um, then they're on kind of on notice. And then the parents and the leader can maybe strategize what you'd like to do about that. Would you like to include the parents then if there's a difficult situation, or would you like to um, have the child make a determination about what they'd like to do? You can stay, but if you're feeling this Mm -hmm. intensely, maybe you want to take a break, maybe you want to take your friend over in the corner and do something quiet or, you know, whatever kind of creative and useful things people could think of. Right. Part of our culture, too, is that we just do everything in a herd. And so it's very difficult to make individual allowances for someone's emotional state. Mm -hmm. Um, But it starts with being informed. I mean, if a leader doesn't know or maybe some of the kids or something, it's it's very difficult. Yeah, I think that in our family, you know, we've – kind of broken it down to what's the company line going to be you know when you're Mm -hmm. asked you know what's wrong or what was that like um you know you 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 do you empower the kids to know how to at least say enough yes but what we've also found is that as we've gone to different leaders whether it be at school or church or community activities or so forth uh, some of them are are like sponges they'll soak it up they'll put into practice what you want them to they really care right others just don't either have the capacity to understand, or they um, are too fearful to engage right. it. Right. And I think that's where the church has to kind of rise above to the next level. The problem is, is we have volunteers. You know, we're all, right. we're, we're volunteer-run organization, exactly. basically. <laughs> exactly. So I guess training then becomes a huge factor in a church, training your staff, training your volunteers. And like you right. said earlier, because it's happening. Without training, the volunteer comes and has probably a whole list of ideas about what the expectations are of them, what they're supposed to be able to handle, all that, you know, American, mm-hmm. I can do it kind of stuff. Yep. Um, and if there's a child who's struggling or a child who's acting out and the volunteers don't have any clue about that, it's very likely that it triggers some of their own um, emotional difficulties or the things that they've been through Hmm. or you know the 
unease with which they deal with emotions. When you said some people might not have the capacity, I mean, there's a, there's a real thing called emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And some people have a lot of it, mm -hmm. and some people don't. And so um, training would help even to uncover who are some of the people that you really can have as assets and allies for people who are struggling, and who are some of the people who maybe should be in different kinds of volunteer right. roles. Right, right. So when you have a client or someone talking to you about their own particular trauma and they're, they're fearful of engaging mm -hmm. and um, they, they don't see the church as being safe, they're, they're, and I, we, you know, unfortunately, as ministry leaders, you're also a ministry leader, and, and, and so is your husband, and you've seen people leave the church because it's right. no longer safe for them, at least in their perception of it. Right. How can a, how can a pastor, do you think, this is, again, you know, your opinion, and um, how can a pastor begin to set a DNA of a safe church, a church where people can come and know they have a shot at being who they are, Mm -hmm. and not feeling like they have to run out of there because that's a reaction a lot of people have. Get me out of here. Sure, right? right. Well, there's part of trauma too is not wanting to be exposed, you mm -hmm. know, afterwards. I don't, I want to have, since I was so out of control in the experience of the trauma to begin with, I now want to have control over the message mm -hmm. or the mm -hmm. what the amount that you know about So there's me. like a trying to regain some traction. Yeah, absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. And in kids, one of the primary ways that you see a post-traumatic child acting out is in their need, high need for control, like to the point where other kids don't get a turn, other kids don't get mm -hmm. to pick the game. I mean, really, really highly controlling. And that's a response to the really out-of-control mm -hmm. experience that mm -hmm. they had. Um. I got lost kind of in that. What were you That's okay. You know, we're just talking about how uh, somebody can feel, how a pastor oh, how can set a DNA yeah. that's safe, yeah. Well, I think that absolutely starts with the pastors being transparent. And, um, again, to the extent that it's possible and safe for them mm -hmm. to share where they have vulnerabilities. And it may not be trauma, but it may just be their own vulnerabilities or where they've made mistakes or where they've had... Um, conflicts or concerns in the past, I think that goes a really long way to helping people to feel safe. Okay, that guy's not standing up there telling me he's perfect. That guy's up there telling me he's a real human being with real feelings and real experiences. And I had some of those. So maybe this is an okay place to be. Right. And then if it, if as leadership is developed, whether that's elders and people who have a role in interacting with people or volunteers in Sunday school or whatever it is, as those people become more experienced and are supported in whatever they've gone through, they can pass that along. I mean, I think we have a compassion deficit um, mm. in, in our culture, and especially as we see the things that are going on in terms of the racial injustice and all of those kinds of things and this whole notion of the cancel culture, it's like it's not compassionate. It's not oriented around forgiveness. It's around judgment and let's just get you out of here, you right, know, right. whether you be on a statue or yeah, in the next right. room. If you've made mistakes, you're done for. And that is definitely not what the gospel's about. You know, if you've made mistakes, Jesus is the answer. 
Yeah, that's right. And that's where our hope is. And if we can give people um, the experience of being listened to, the experience of being understood, even if we as church leaders can't fix things, because we probably can't, um, but at least we can point people to hope. And we can help people, you know, we're renewed by the transformation of our mind, not, you know, the transformation of our life circumstances or our pocketbooks or or government isn't Mm -hmm. going to change things. But if we're renewed by the transforming of our minds, it's then we need input into our minds that's going to be accurate. It's going to be based on truth. It's going to be based on the gospel so that people can know without with absolutely no reservation. God loves me and there is nothing, 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 nothing that can change that. And that is such a hopeful experience for people um, that I think that would be a goal, you know, to, yeah, to be sure. able to get people to the point of understanding that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little concerned that they're going to cancel the statue they're going to make for me here um, at really? Ridgewood. Yeah, yeah, they might take that down at some point. Um, but it's interesting that you went down that road of cancel culture because I've never really considered how it affects the church inside the church. I've always mm-hmm. been fearful that we're going to engage it outside of the church and be a bad witness and so forth. And But wow, you can see the logic there, though, that if if people are being shamed and shut down out there mm-hmm. for everything you say, where you can, you're not even sure what T-shirt to put on anymore right. to go out the house. right then when is that going to make its way into the church where people are going to just say, like, I'm shutting down here, too, because it's not safe anywhere? And that, to me, it frightens me because we have made inroads, like you said, mm-hmm. but it seems like it would be a coming upon all believers to not let that seep into the church. Right. But it's but it it requires a um, an accurate understanding of the word of God when it comes to who God is and what Mm -hmm. God is like. Mm -hmm. And he is slow to anger. He's abounding in great love and compassion. And he's offered us forgiveness. And that's not out there. That's in here. That's what makes the church the church. Right, right. And that's why the church has to remain the church. Right. Because the culture so desperately needs the church to be the church, but the people in the church need the church to be the church as well. To them, yes. And you... You know, I'm I'm always shocked at when I'm just, you know, um, scrolling through Twitter. Everything is hyper-personal. Yes. Um, mocking. Every politician is mocked. Uh, everyone's a dunce. Everyone's an idiot. Everybody's this or that. It's not anymore, you know, I don't like that policy. Mm-hmm. That's not the way it is anymore. No. And and for Christians to begin to engage in that, it's, it's not just harmful to how non-believers see us. We are damaging an image bearer of God, and God loves everyone equally, even if they're not believers. Right. He wants them to come to faith. Right. But somehow we seem to think that, well, we don't want to harm a brother or sister, but let's go, you know, go at go it. With, and I just don't, I don't like that either. I don't think that's no. healthy. No. And I don't think it, 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 I don't think the things we're talking about here are enabled by that. I think it just shuts people down, causes people to live in anger and frustration. And lose hope. And lose hope. Is that an issue that you deal with a lot? Is is hope a big issue for trauma hope victims? Hope is huge, mm-hmm. huge, because <clears throat> clinically one of the symptoms of 
post-traumatic stress disorder is a sense of a foreshortened future. Mm-hmm. And so what, you know, putting that into normal human language is a loss of hope. Like, my life's never going to get any better than this. This defines my life. This is, my life is over. Wow. And if there's a loss of hope, then there isn't much to move forward for. Right. And so that's where the, the healing really needs to take place. Well, I want to talk more about hope next time we're together because that's a great place to end it because um, that is something we have in droves in the church is hope. To yes. give. Let's hope we do. <laughs> yeah. Kim, thanks so much for being here. I Thank appreciate you so it so much. much. Kim Paragate is here and she's a licensed psychologist and she'll be back with us next time as well. And we, we love to tell stories on life support to help you find a deeper relationship with Christ through suffering, through trauma. And I want to thank all of our wonderful partners, Faith Radio at MyFaithRadio.com. I want to thank Five Stone Media. You can reach them and you can see a video version of this podcast at FiveStoneMedia.com. And you can also check us out at Ridgewood Church at myrwc.org slash life support and check me out on Twitter. I'd love to see you at Pastor Paul J. You know, we're talking a lot about love and we're talking about God's love for us. And Kim mentioned that that love never, ever ebbs and flows. It's constant. And I just think of 1 John four nineteen. You know, we love because he first loved us. And that's really where our theology begins, the fact that God's love is there. And I think of the fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8, not after we got cleaned up, not after we adopted the right political stances, but while we were yet sinners. And so I want to encourage you with that. If you're struggling right now, if you're feeling alone, if you're feeling isolated, God has not abandoned you. And though we are going through a dark time in many respects, God is still at work. God is sovereign and he loves you. And we know that because he first loved us. He first loved you. So take heart in that today. I'm so glad you listened to Life Support, and we'll catch you next time as well. Thanks for listening to this Life Support podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make a gift now at myfaithradio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Life Support, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or your podcast player. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and grow the impact of Life Support.